This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Some of the stories we take up this week on This Week in FCPA include the Facebook whistleblower, Petrofac settles with a serious fraud office. What are ESG and business risks and how do they intersect? The Department of Justice to emphasize white criminal cases going forward in the Biden administration. What is the intersection of ancient history and FCPA enforcement? Dick Casson explains in the FCPA blog. What are the lessons learned from the Pandora Papers? How can you use AI for pattern recognition in investigations? Will ethical lapses at the Federal Reserve Bank sink the Powell nomination for a second term? The big stink in green bonds? Would you trust Ozzy as Ozzy says it is open for business again? Risk-based compliance and ransomware. Where is the intersection? New podcast, surveys, Converge 21, and much more, all on This Week in FCPA, the Facebook Whistleblower Edition. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 273 for the week ending, October 15, 2021. The back in the ALCS, or for you heathens out there, the cheater's ball. As the Astros and Red Sox meet in the ALCS, that's American League Championship Series. So for all you not in there, too bad. Is it a cheater's ball? Jay and I will explore that and other questions as we look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories on the back in the ALCS edition. Jay, what say you? I say it's time to start banging my trash can and getting those runs in. Absolutely. Well, Jay, uh, I think everyone who listens to this podcast knows um, you're a recovering screenwriter, and you wear that moniker proudly. But I want to ask you, yes, who knows what values lurk in the heart of man? Is it the shadow, or could we say perhaps... Legacy emails do as well. Uh, I do know who the shadow is. My dad used to love listening to him on the radio. But uh, I think we should take a look at the havoc that some legacy emails could wreck on very high-profile NFL teams and coaches. So why don't you tell us what you've been thinking about this week? Sure, and maybe we can uh, pontificate on this a little bit. 
uh, because it's uh, glorious uh, uh, and uh, involves the National Football League and a lot of other issues. So John Gruden, um, former head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, was outed on Sunday by the Wall Street Journal in an article uh, that's uh, quoted a uh, email he sent about the head of the NFL Players Association, DeMarc, DeMar, Marcus Smith, Mar, DeMar Smith, and uh, he used a racial trope uh, that I will not repeat because, of course, we're a PG podcast. Um, and it was uh, something that um, racists say about the physical characteristics of uh, black people sometimes. Um, so that came out, and and it was pretty bad. And he, of course, said, "I'm I'm not a racist. Uh, I don't know. I don't." First, he said, "I don't remember sending it." Then he decided he wasn't a racist. Well, unfortunately, from there, it only got worse because the New York Times reported a trove of emails, uh, which were not only more racist, but they were sexist, homophobic misogynist, uh, disrespectful of the people he had worked for and with. Um, he even suggested that one owner he used to work for, who he won a Super Bowl for, for perform a specified sex act on him. So um, whether you call this locker room talk, whether you call it boys will be boys, whatever it is or was, it was in writing. And they uh, extended from a time period of 2011 up to 2018. Now, the way these emails came to light was equally interesting, Jay. As, uh, I think we actually uh, commented on this show about the Washington football team. Um, they got into trouble for a toxic workplace. They were fined $10 million, and their owner was suspended from managing the football team for some time. As a part of that investigation, these emails were unearthed because Gruden was sending them to a former colleague who was then the general manager of the Washington football team, one Bruce Allen. So these uh, emails were brought to the attention of the NFL by the investigative firm, law firm, and the NFL uh, had the firm review some 650,000 emails only related or only that were housed um, by the Washington football team. And so that's where the information came out. Um, Once again, because of the nature of our PG podcast, we will not specifically say what was in the emails, but they were about as bad as as anything I've read that you would put in emails. Um, Short of George Carlin's seven words you can never say in emails. Um, Adapted. For 2021, um, the um, after the second trove was released on Tuesday of this week, Gruden resigned, voluntarily took a termination from the um, Las Vegas Raiders. And uh, that stanched the initial bleeding. But, of course, many other questions were raised by this. Number one, uh, why were these only coming out to light now? Number two, apparently the NFL had sent the original racist trope email to the Las Vegas Raiders some time ago for their review and comment, uh, begging the question, was the NFL actually going to do anything? Uh, uh, But when the information about the emails came out, 
Um, that's when all hell broke loose. Um, so uh, a lot going on. The um, Clearly, uh, Gruden is a racist. He is a sexist, and he is a homophobe, and he is a misogynist because he attacked all of those groups in the most crude language possible. Is this a cultural symptom across the NFL? Well, you got all those magna hat-wearing owners, so that probably shouldn't surprise you uh, in any one uh, reason. But um, what's the NFL going to do about this? What's the um, NFL going to do about this? What's the um, are the Raiders going to do about this? Uh, are the uh, emails going to be released? The head of the NFL Players Union has requested they be released. Um, Derek Carr, the quarterback of Oakland or excuse me, Las Vegas, uh, said that they should be released. Uh, several NFL players have spoken out about this. Is this a systemic problem throughout the? NFL, uh, the players union wants to know was, do, do you think Col- Colin Kaepernick was on to something several years back, Tom? Uh, he was also disparaged, uh, in this trove of emails. So really, uh, a lot going on, Jay. Uh, I, I found a lot of lessons for the compliance professional in this. Um, first and foremost, uh, nearly 20 years ago, I did internal training at Halliburton on, quote, don't put stupid stuff in emails, end quote. And I think maybe I should revive that training because some people really need it. Uh, but um, the thing that really uh, struck me, Jay, about how this really impacts compliance is you may run a tight ship at your organization and you may think you're getting away with lots. But if there's a... Uh, fellow company, a uh, uh, company in your um, industry, then they may, um, and they're under investigation, they may have emails from your folks, and you may not even know the um, potential damage or reputational damage that you're going to take uh, if those come out. And, and I think that was certainly uh, one of the things that struck me about the Raiders here. Uh, whether or not uh, racism came into any salary negotiations, negotiation with the players' union, um, uh, strategies or tactics by the NFL, we don't know that. Um, it, it's really as about as bad as it can get. Um, not too many people have defended um, Gruden, although his brother did. His name is being removed from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers Ring of Honor uh, because he was their only uh, Super Bowl winning coach. The um, I don't really know where this is going to end. The NFL itself has a huge problem on its hands uh, because if they start nosing around in teams' emails, uh, you and I both know they have no idea what they'll find. Uh, given the stupidity of Gruden, uh, he held two of the highest positions in the National Football League. Number one, at ESPN, he was the uh, lead commentator for Monday Night Football. He also had Gruden's camp where he interviewed uh, high school, or excuse me, college seniors. And, of course, he became the highest paid coach in the history of the NFL. So he's really at the, at the very top of his profession. And if he's doing it, you can probably 
bet that there are others doing it as well. We should also note the NFL is 70% black. It now has one openly gay player in it. There are female referees. Um, all of those were disparaged uh, by Gruden. So I don't know where you might want to start to unpack that or you have a, maybe a, a little angle or an angle you want to focus on, but how do we think through this imbroglio well, I want to bring up something that you and I, uh, we traded emails earlier this week, and I asked somewhat rhetorically, why was the justice so swift in the NFL this time around versus, you know, you look at somebody like Al Franken or you look at other people who had issues with whether they're Me Too issues or issues in <clears throat> defaming other people. And, Tom, why don't you share with the answer why you think the justice was so quick from the NFL? Well, uh, I mean, Al Franklin was, what, six years ago now? Um, And uh, we've had evolutionary cycles since then. And uh, number one, number two is social media, as powerful as it was five or six years ago, was nothing compared to what it is now. And uh, the reputational hit that the Raiders – ESPN and the NFL in general took, uh, I think they immediately, uh, ESPN um, tangentially because they employed Gruden during summer of these, when these emails were sent, they no longer employ him. But the NFL had to do something and they had to do something immediately. You, you know, Gruden resigned. So you get, you give him kudos for not saying, well, I, you know, I didn't mean any of the things I said, but um, I hit, hit, I hope, his professional football career is over. There's no place for any of that anywhere. And whatever may lie in the evil recesses of your heart, you better keep it in your heart and you better not commit it to paper or I guess electronic email uh, because it's going to come out. And, uh, you know, we've seen a series of scandals this year, Jay. Uh, Activision is the most recent one that comes to mind. Um, where uh, company employees essentially rose up and said, no, this is not right. Uh, This is a toxic workplace. And you're lying through your teeth when you say it's not. And if Gruden took any of the obvious values that were in his heart into the workplace, well, he's committed sexual harassment. He's committed sexual discrimination. He's committed racial discrimination. He's committed sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, and a wide variety of other things that are truly antithetical to the workplace of 2021. Well, we're going to hear more about this. And um, thank you, everyone out there, for letting Tom and I take a little extra time and go for a deep dive. We're going to get into the uh, stories part of the week. And uh, I'm going to look at something from uh, my alma mater, Knowledge at Wharton, by Professor Richard Schell. And he talks about confronting ethical and moral dilemmas, and his advice is don't go it alone. When you're faced with a moral or ethical dilemma at work, it's common to believe that your choices are limited to three less than optimal options. First, you could remain silent. Second, single-handedly confront the perpetrator or perpetrators. Or number three, report him or her and perhaps the whole team to a higher authority. But there's another way. In fact, believing you have to handle this situation alone, no matter which option you choose, violates the conscience code, a set of 10 rules developed to help you lead 
with your values while advancing your career. Specifically, rule number six explains the importance of leveraging the power of two. An ally can bolster your confidence, help you think more clearly about the situation, and keep you grounded when you try to make it look as if you are the problem. In fact, when it comes to resisting pressure from peers and authorities to just go it alone or look the other way, one plus one equals much more than two. Psychologists report that the best workplace allies allies are those who can help you better understand the situation you're in and then provide a confidence booth when you try to manage it. For ideas about when and how to leverage alliances, listen to these action steps below. When you're faced with with wrongdoing at work, consider testing out your viewpoint in private with one other person, perhaps a quieter one who might be open to hearing your perspective or creating an alliance. If that's too risky, consider reaching out to the person who recruited you, or maybe a mentor or a colleague who's been at the firm longer than you. Here are three ideas for leveraging the power of two. Number one, deal with peer pressure. Another's voice speaking truth will help you feel less isolated in your position and more confident in asserting your point of view. Number two, stand up to authority. Stanley Milgram's infamous power of authority studies investigated how ordinary German people had gone along with the Holocaust and World War II. His experiments demonstrated that ordinary citizens could be pressured into delivering what appeared to be lethal levels of electric shocks to human victims. In one version of the experiment, Milgram created teams of three to deliver the shocks. Having allies at your side can empower you to act on your values more quickly and decisively than relying on your inner resources alone. And the third option, gain a fresh perspective. Professor Philip Zimbardo's troubled Stanford prison experiment in which he placed randomly selected undergraduates in roles of guards and prisoners attempted to provide the social roles and systemic pressures that can distort behavior of normal people. The power of two thus extends to people completely outside your workplace bubble, people who can point out how far you have strayed from your ethical commitments and bring you back to your senses. So how can leaders use this? By now, the story of the charismatic 19-year-old Stanford undergraduate Elizabeth Holmes is in the news about her idea to approach blood testing is well known. What's often missing from the tales of the Theranos scandal are Tyler Schultz and Erica Chung, two 20-something employees who were faced with the immense pressure from their superiors and peers to go along with what was clearly a massive fraud. New hires Schultz and Chung worked together on a team that was testing the accuracy of Edison, Holmes's blood testing machine. When they noticed that the data results were deviated too far from expected, they were told that these, it was standard practice to ignore these outliers. When Schultz and Chung finally pushed back, they were admonished for not being team players. And finally, after their superiors knowingly submitted the false data to regulators, Schultz turned in an anonymous complaint, complaint to investigators and sent a letter to Holmes with details of the concerns. Chung filed a report with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services about misconduct, and the complaint triggered a formal investigation in which combination with a series of front page investigative stories in the Wall Street Reporter, Wall Street Journal. 
Schultz and Chung leveraged the power of two, feeding off of each other's energies, advancing each other's strategic thinking, and provided independent, credible information that the inner workings of a corrupt organization that could be used as evidence by the legal system. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next up, we have an article from our colleague, Mike Volkov, and Mike takes a look at third-party risk and its evolution. And he says there are really two things that have caused this evolution far beyond the traditional areas of anti-corruption, anti-bribery, export control, AML, et cetera. And that's the pandemic and ESG. The pandemic put more pressure on supply chains and brought up more opportunities for fraudulent uh, vendors to come into your supply chain. So that increased risk and it required increased oversight. But the second thing, Jay, was ESG. And this really ties into my uh, extended discussion about the reputational damage to the Las Vegas Raiders, ESPN, and the NFL, that you now have to consider reputational damage in your third parties and in your supply chain. So if they're engaging in uh, using human slave labor, uh, any uh, kind of human trafficking for labor they're using, uh, any of those issues could certainly uh, damage you reputationally. So it's really expanded the need for due diligence. And uh, I would say, other than call Candace Tao and Infotel, uh, you really need to take a serious look at the level of due diligence you're doing on any third party, whether they be on the sales side, more importantly now on the supply chain side, because typically due diligence has not looked at anything other than uh, perhaps your top 1% vendors in your supply chain. So an evolution in the risk of third-party management, as always, we link to the article and we we would commend you uh, to take a look at Mike's thoughts on this issue. Jay, um, what's the role of employees in weeding out corporate misconduct? Well, Tom, we're going to check in with one of our weekly sources, the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, by a new voice over there. Hopefully I say his name correctly, David Smagala. Issues around cryptocurrency, cybersecurity, and efforts to encourage whistleblowers dominated the discussion at this past Tuesday's Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Forum. Employee engagement is seen by compliance professionals as instrumental in uncovering potential crimes within companies. This was said by Glenn Leon, Senior Vice President and Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer at Hewlett-Packard. During the coronavirus pandemic, Mr. Leonard, excuse me, Mr. Leon initially saw a decline in incoming complaints and inquiries from employees. Although he isn't sure of the precise reason behind this decline, his working theory is that people aren't in offices as much engaging with managers face-to-face, and they may be seeking external sources to report workplace issues. Other topics of note at the Risk and Compliance Forum, cryptocurrency. Around 23% of Americans now own cryptocurrencies, said Melissa Strait, Coinbase Global's Incorporated's Chief Compliance Officer, and she cited figures from a comparison platform, Finder.com, that suggests that crypto has begun a move towards the investing mainstream. As cryptocurrency moves into the mainstream, however, it's emerged as the tool of choice for bad actors employing ransomware against corporations, requiring regulatory authorities to refocus results. Liu Cao, Principal Deputy Chief of the Justice Department's Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Section, points to the formation of the Ransomware and Digital Extortion Task Force, 
which brings together components from across the department, as well as the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team, to target the misuse of cryptocurrency for money laundering and other criminal activities. Quote, I think both of these actions reflect just how important ransomware is to the department to cryptocurrency crimes in general, said Mr. Show. Cybersecurity. The pandemic has also moved a new set of concerns to the forefront of compliance professionals. The increasing threat posed by employees working from home, often using technology and suboptimal security conditions. Hewlett Packard's Mr. Leon described it as a growing concern connected with the increased use of laptops at home, which many cyber breaches stemming from employees' misuse of their computers or linking linking on an errant link. For companies around the world, it's perhaps not a matter of if, but more like when, referring to cyber cyber attacks. This was said by Nancy Grigel, Senior Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer, Worldwide Compliance and Business Ethics for Amgen. So companies ought to definitely invest resources in a lot of educational training. What you do in the situation is you train, you educate, you retain, and you remind people of the proper way to use their computers, said Mr. Leon. That, frankly, is the biggest thing from a compliance perspective we can do. Tom, back to you. So, Jay, uh, next up, we have an article from Compliance Week, Kyle Brasseur, reporting on the ex-Brascom CEO who got 20 months uh, jail time. And the significance of this, obviously, is anytime you have a CEO getting hard time, uh, that's a pretty big deal under the FCPA. He was intimately involved in the bribery, uh, not just scheme, but the entire uh, business built around bribery by Brascom, a business unit of Odebrecht. So uh, pretty significant penalty, uh, 20 months, uh, nearly two years. So uh, rare to see a CEO go down. We haven't seen it in quite some time, certainly not from uh, a company this large. Um, uh, but uh, the Petrobras Javalato scandal continues, and there still continues uh, to be fallout from that, Jay, um, some 10 years after uh, the original scandal broke. Uh, so, Jay, what are your thoughts, or rather, Loidette by Marrow's thoughts? on cooperating or not with the securities, excuse me, the serious fraud office. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks, Tom. This is my favorite article of the week. It comes to us from the FCPA blog. And as you said, uh, Lloydette is just a great commentator. If you don't read her, you should read her. She's got great insights from her background at the SFO. And with the article, she starts off talking about uh, the Petrofac case, which we've mentioned, and it was settled on October 4th of 2021 this year. 
The lengthy SFO investigation has dented the fortunes of the company, and Petrofax cooperation may have come too late. While the company ended up with a reduced fine, its reputation has already been tarnished. In her article, Lloydette looks at seven interesting issues around cooperation with law enforcement and during regulatory investigations. First, external advisors cannot make an organization's decision on whether or not to cooperate with law enforcement. Those advisors present options. Still, the decision to cooperate or not falls to senior leaders of your company. Second, leaders must be persuaded that cooperation is in the best interest of the company. They must also grapple with this fact that the investigation is now out of their control. Third, it may not be in the organization's best interest to cooperate for a variety of reasons, but care must be taken to fully acknowledge what non-cooperation will mean. Fourth, law enforcement and regulatory investigations are a serious distraction, diverting attention from an organization's key priorities. They are also a drain on human and financial resources. Fifth, Early engagement with the investigating authorities to establish what they require from the organization is crucial. Six, there should be a clear and coherent strategy for resolution endorsed and supported by both senior leaders and the organization as a whole. The organization should establish its position on issues such as disclosing material that is properly subject to legal professional privilege and ensure the position aligns with strategy for a resolution. And finally, there are best practices expectations of what cooperation should look like, but it isn't just prescriptive and it will ultimately depend upon the nature of the investigation and the investigating authority. Therefore, organizations should be alert to what may have been a sufficient level of cooperation in another case may not be enough in respect to resolving this matter at hand. As an organization has an uncertain an arduous path to navigating in cooperation with investigation, but that may be the path that bears the most fruit and best enables an organization to move forward and pass its misdemeanors. Tom, back to you. So, Jay, next up we have an article from, sorry in advance, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this name, Dipali Hawan in CCI that talks about uh, regulatory enforcement and uh, codes for EU and UK banks. And uh, as Brexit has shown in many different areas, largely in the political arena, Jay, uh, we see a divergent in, divergence in regulatory demands between the EU and the UK. This is going to put uh, increased pressure on UK banks, particularly those multinational banks that have branches literally across the EU, uh, because until just a few months ago, uh, they were one jurisdictional unit. So uh, work will be required for UK banks who do business on the continent. And it may end up being a dual reporting scenario, which, of course, is uh, a really difficult thing for um, uh, many businesses to have to report to multiple agencies across multiple jurisdictions. Nevertheless, uh, the way regulatory refor- reform is working more aggressive in the EU than currently in the United Kingdom, uh, we may see uh, UK banks really uh, suffer uh, the brunt of this. And then, of course, for U.S. banks doing business in both, they're going to uh, to need to comply with uh, perhaps two different uh, uh, regulatory 
regime. So uh, financial institutions, you'll need to uh, keep an eye on this, and uh, it's something that uh, we will certainly be following as well. Jay, could you tell us what a tech risk is, and is it different than a cybersecurity risk? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. Uh, this comes to us from Carol Williams, writing in Navix Global's Risk and Compliance Matters blog. So what is a tech risk? It's not an earth-shattering thing to say that the news of hacks, data breaches, and other technology hiccups has grown exponentially in recent years. Here's a few of this year's data breaches. A ransomware attack on a major fuel provider that carried 45% of the U.S. East Coast petroleum supply, resulting in a payment of $2.3 million ransom. The discovery by a prominent lead generation firm that Social Security numbers, bank accounts, and driver's license of over 10 million of its customers were being sold on the dark web and an attack on a men's clothing retailer by a notorious cyber criminal who posted the PII of over 7 million of its shoppers. Of course, this barely scratches the surface. Companies have several frameworks to choose from for helping them address technology risks, and the risk management framework for information systems and organizations from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, considered the most authoritative. Other examples include the Factor Analysis of Information Risk, FAIR, framework, and the ISO 27005 standard. While these standards do provide guidance on identifying and assessing and managing risks, they each have one big shortcoming. They fail to address business risks associated with technology. Truly understanding and managing technology risks effectively requires a holistic approach focused on the business. IT professionals should have a good technical understanding of cyber and general technology risks. However, they typically only focus on the immediate impacts of data breaches, like the number of records exposed and remediating the cause of the breach. Most organizations also mistakenly believe that since they have insurance for instances like this, that they don't need to do anything else. This approach to technology risk can do more harm than good. Here are some non-insurable impacts that immediately come to mind. The business can't serve its customers putting an immediate halt to revenue. Employees can't access the company network and data stopping work in its track. Strategic initiatives are forced to a standstill. And word spreads quickly via social media, whether from employees or customers, negatively impacting the company's reputation. But according to a recent book from Norman Marks, Making Business Sense of Technology Risk, it goes any further. Simply, managing risk is insufficient in today's world. Informed risks have to be taken in order for organizations to add value and remain relevant in the world that's changing at lightning speed. How should a board assess whether to invest in reducing risks related to technology, address other business risks, or putting that money toward new product development, increases in sales staff, or a new marketing campaign? In past days, it would be advisable for a company to wait until a particular technology risk was below a certain threshold. In today's world, companies don't have the luxury to wait on that. So how can risk professionals help IT executives and staff communicate technology risks to decision makers. Risk professionals have an important role to play here, ensuring the link between technology risks and goals and objectives is understood by decision makers. 
by not breaking risks down through root cause or scenario analysis, it will be impossible to know if mitigations are appropriate or what actions can be taken, if any. Any information executives any information that executives do receive will be confusing and overwhelming and therefore continue to feed the perception that ERM is not a helpful tool for building a strategic advantage. In the end, actions can only be as specific as the risks you have identified. Technology risks have been a growing concern for many years and will continue to dominate headlines. Therefore, you as risk managers need to help their IT colleagues properly understand and communicate these risks and the appropriate context to decision makers to ensure a proper balance is struck between risk mitigation and risk talk, risk taking. Tom, last week or the week before, you spoke about our good friends at Aussie. What's happening there from the audit perspective? Francie McKenna, uh, probably one of the top commentators from the audit perspective on things, writes in the dig, and she took a look at Aussie from the audit perspective. First of all, both on behalf of myself and Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, shout out to Francine for citing us uh, in talking about Ozzy on the Compliance End of the Weeds podcast. So she obviously knows what she's doing. But uh, Francine does look at things from the audit perspective. And frankly, I was stunned to find there's no audited financial statements for Ozzy. Uh, Jay, you, you have some business background, as I understand it. I, I think you talked about a vocational school that uh, you went to night school somewhere in, somewhere in Pennsylvania uh, in, for your business degree. But it seems to me uh, that you, you're familiar with audited versus unaudited financial statements. And uh, it, I believe at one point in your yes, career, you, you were an investment continue. banker and that topic may have come up from time to time. Uh, when you have a $40 million company uh, with unaudited financial statements, uh, all I could say is, wow, things must have really changed since the last time I looked at uh, investment rules or anybody uh, thinking about putting money into to a business. Um, so this was um, uh, what Francine uh, talked about. And you have to, Jay, we have to quote her opening line because, of course, Anytime you quote James Bond or, and or his creator, which was the following, quote, one is happenstance, two is coincidence, three times is an enemy action. Well, we had the enemy action here because uh, for the third time we, uh, we saw that there was a third recent time we saw there was no audited financial statements. And, Jay, it really speaks to uh, we can tie this, I think, clearly and most importantly back to compliance because if your business is looking at uh, some type of major partnership, major business in investment, excuse me, major uh, any type of business venture, if the person across from you or the company across from you doesn't have audited financial statements, you really have no idea of their financial stability or their financial health. And at the level of, of uh, money Oz, Ozzy was trying to raise, uh, to keep going, and they now say they're going to re- restart, um, you, you've got to have some assurance for people that the numbers are real. And it turns out with Ozzy, of course, they were completely fake. And she really uh, ties it, I think, most nicely and perhaps most importantly to Theranos, which also did not have audited financial statements. So um, people threw billions at Theranos. 
people through millions at Ozzy. Uh, maybe there's a way you and I can get this week in FCPA on that gravy train because uh, last time I looked, we didn't have audited financial statements. So maybe there's, maybe there's things have changed. I don't know, but uh, I was just stunned to find that out. But if you don't subscribe to the dig, it, it is well worth it. Francine is great. She writes long form articles and uh, once again, from the audit perspective, she has an angle that I think uh, is, is, is a unique voice, both for internal audit and also for the wider compliance world. So Ozzy stays in the news. So, Jay, uh, we close out with uh, something on ESG. What do you see about ESG and following the money? So uh, this comes to us by Lawrence Heim at his practicalesg.com website. Um in terms of following money, a new survey has come out from Van Verdantix that shows that corporate executives are looking to back up their ESG talk with putting money on the table. Uh, there's an article that we link to here that summarizes some of the important results of this recent survey. Budgets for 2022 ESG initiatives and programs are seeing increases according to those who responded to the survey. Here's three examples. ESG sustainability initiatives are looking to see double-digit increases over budgets from 2021. Supply chain sustainability will get more attention and funding next year in 2022. And companies are increasingly spending for IT systems to improve ESG data collection, management, and metrics. One theme that runs through the results is executives are seeking clarity about ESG. They need realistic and objective analyses, solutions, and cost-effective tools. Even though they're spending more, corporate leaders want to ensure that they're spending wisely. So, Tom, that uh, finishes up the 10 articles for the week. Let's dive into podcasting and events and tell us uh, what's going on at Compliance Week. Well, Jay, uh, we talked about what evil lurks in the hearts of men or perhaps uh, – what values lurk in their hearts. Compliance Week is looking inside the mind of the CCO, and they're doing it through a survey. And if you are interested in participating, we've linked to the survey in the show notes. It really helps, I think, the greater compliance community um, understand uh, what's on the mind of the CCO in uh, 2022. Also, uh, Ethisphere's World's Most Ethical Company Awards are open for submission uh, for more information on uh, the application process, we've linked to that in the show notes. Uh, applications close November 12th. So, Jay, the question I did want to pose to you after asking what if you knew what values lurks in the heart of man is, are you exasperated? I am. And I think in, in the PG manner that we're dealing with this uh, website, you're going to tell me uh, what I should do about effing Argentina. Yes, so uh, Effing Argentina series continues, posted this week. Uh, was a chapter about, it's a journeyman tennis player's tale, Jay, but it's really about all of us who've had to deal with Mr. or Ms. Perfect. Uh, so uh, a lot of exasperation and dealing with uh, Ken and Barbie over the years. Um, this month on The Compliance Life, I have John Mellican. John's currently a managing director at Exeter, but he's a formerly CCO at American Express Travel. In episode two, he moved to uh, from the from the prosecutorial world into the corporate world, and then became a compliance uh, officer. Uh, next week, we'll talk about his move to the CCO chair. 
Karsten Tams and I have started the newest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, um, Design Thinking in Compliance. And we posted an episode Wednesday. We talked about uh, co-creation and why that's such a powerful tool. Um, so, Jay, um, I was privileged to be on Bestseller TV to talk about the Compliance Handbook. That episode is out, and I've linked uh, to that in the show notes. But we have one more thing to talk about, and that, of course, is the cheater's ball. How cool is this? Is this like the penultimate? Is this better than beating the Yankees? What's it like for a long-suffering, now used-to-winning Boston Red Sox fan? Well, it's been kind of quick for me because during the season, you know, I get overwhelmed by 162 games and uh, started to think that the Red Sox were cursed because they were getting infected by uh, COVID-19. They've had this incredible comeback with these walk-off wins. So uh, I'm kind of tickled pink. I didn't expect to be here. I know, Tom, that every year you expect your Astros to be competing for the American league pennant. So uh, this might be more of a normal thing for you, but I'm taking this as uh, this is going to be great glee. And like I said, or like you said, it's the the cheater's ball. So one of us is going to cheat our way into the World Series. So we're already ahead of the game. Well, you know, the White Sox accused us of uh, sign stealing. Uh, Woe begotten is me. Uh, The Astros is their fifth straight ALCS. Uh, number two now uh, on the all-time record. Uh, it's nice to be with a winner for the first time in a long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jay, if it was someone uh, who followed a team from near a city you live in, um, I might uh, be embracing the hate. But it's a little hard to embrace the hate from the number two cheater baseball firm in baseball. Uh, I think the Astros have, will always have that mantle, at least till the next big cheating scandal. So the cheater's ball is here. Uh, Jay and I are going to just revel in it. We're going to enjoy it. I hope it goes seven games, and uh, I hope we have a lot of fun. Yeah. So uh, as always, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfoxlaw at, t, uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm uh, Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen. You can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 273 for the week ending October 15, which we've told you is the back in the ALCS edition, a.k.a. the Cheaters Ball. We uh, would like to thank you for spending part of your week or weekend with us, and we look forward to seeing you next week when we will take a look at This Week in FCPA. Take care. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Jay Rosen can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. If you'd like to learn more about using social engineering for the improvement in both efficiency and engagement in your compliance program, we have a new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, Design Thinking and Compliance. This is the podcast for you. In this podcast with my co-host, Karsten Tams, we take a look at using design thinking to improve your compliance program. 
I'd also like to give a shout out to the Gwick ladies, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine, for their award of one of the top podcasts in diversity and inclusion that was uh, issued by W3. Also, the Everything Compliance Gang for being one of the top talk shows in podcasting. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.